All right, well, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18? And this morning, I'd like to pick it up in verse 15 of Matthew 18, where Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, we're getting into a passage where the Lord is really focusing on the procedure of dealing with somebody who has wronged you, hurt you, sinned against you in some way. This morning, however, I want to broaden that a little bit uh, to include all conflict resolution. I realize that not all conflict is a result of somebody doing something to hurt you. But conflict resolution is a very important part of the church, church life. So I'd like to this morning just kind of broaden our subject a little bit, and we'll next time we'll get into the passage and break it down. But let me just begin this morning by saying again that in any human relationships, there is going to be conflict, okay? Conflict is inevitable, and that's just the way it is. Anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is either ignorant uh, or they're not being honest with you. There's only one relationship in the universe where there is never, ever any conflict, and that's the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, period. That's it, all right? Conflict, again, in interpersonal relationships is inevitable. But listen to me, resolution is not. Resolution is not. Conflict happens. Resolution takes hard work. I'm finding more and more in our society, and even in the church, that conflict seems to be escalating, but resolution seems to be declining. And we see this in different areas across the board. We see it uh, in our country in terms of race relations, uh, how they are strained and not getting better, but getting worse. We see it in the hyper-partisan political climate in Washington. We see it manifesting itself in the uh, escalating divorce rate. Some people would say, well, wait a minute, the divorce rate is going down. That's only because more young couples have decided not even to get married just to move in with each other. That's not, that doesn't mean that people are solving their conflicts better. It just means that a lot of couples are not even getting married, and I've seen that statistic as well. We see it even in the church, with one church split after another. When you go to a town and you see the 10th Presbyterian Church, that means nine others came out of the first one. All right, It kept splitting over doctrinal issues. Until you have the, the Fourth Baptist, the Tenth Presbyterian. Um, we see it all over the place, okay, even in the church. Now, what is the problem? Conflict has been around since the beginning of time, but it seems like it's escalating. And if you don't think so, if you're a, a parent with a child in, like, a Little League or football or even soccer, I've heard more than one times that have banned parents from attending their children's uh, baseball games because the parents are the worst, they're fighting, slugging it out, you know, and attacking the umpires, you know. Uh, this is, was unheard of, you know, uh, a generation ago. It seems that conflict is escalating, but it's not being resolved as it once was. 
What is the reason for that? Well, I don't want to be too simplistic. I'll give you what I think is one reason. I think it's probably the main reason. It goes back to what Jesus has just gotten done teaching earlier in this chapter. Remember how we started chapter 18 with verse 1, which said, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, when we studied that passage, we said that Mark tells us in his gospel that this was concerning an argument that they had gotten into earlier in the day. We read in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, or verses 33 and 4. It says, Then he came to Capernaum, Jesus, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. The word dispute there is a Greek word that means an argument containing a level of hostility. In other words, a conflict had arisen between the disciples. A conflict that had escalated into a rather heated argument about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. And Jesus responded by calling a toddler to himself and using the child to teach his disciples that the quality that produces greatness in God's eyes is humility, which he talked about in verse 4. In that passage, he taught us that humility is really what allows us to exercise genuine saving faith. Proud people can't be saved. God resists the proud. So humility is what allows us to exercise genuine saving faith in order to become members of God's kingdom in the first place. But then Jesus went on to teach us that humility is what allows us to become great in God's kingdom once we are members. And then in verse 15, notice the word moreover. The verse starts with the word moreover at the beginning there, indicating that Jesus is continuing to use humility as a basis for his teaching in verses 15 to 35 with regard to conflict resolution, those who sin against us, and the importance of forgiveness. I can't tell you, and we, we tried to touch on this a couple weeks ago, but I can't tell you how, how critical humility is to any interpersonal relationship. And again, we had a lot to say about this when we studied the first four verses of chapter 18. So if you weren't here, you can get the CD or go on our website and listen to it. Um, but in a nutshell, humility toward others is simply the attitude that says, you are more important to me than I am. What horizontal humility, humility between us and our fellow man, simply the attitude that says, you are more important to me than I am. I think Paul summed up the spirit of humility beautifully in Philippians 2, verse 3, when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And that, to me, is the scriptural definition of humility. And there was a time in our nation's history when people seemed to practice this more than they do today. I mean, there was a time in our nation's history when there was civility, when there was respect for each other's opinions. I mean, I'm not, not, not with everyone. Of course, there's always been people that refuse to, to think of anyone but themselves. I understand that. But I'm talking about our society in general. There was a time in our nation's history when it seemed like people were more willing to work through their issues, more willing to listen to each other uh, with respect and courtesy than we see today. Why was that? What's going on today? 
Well, I believe for the most part, we are seeing the fulfillment of a prophecy that Paul gave for those who would find themselves living in the last days. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. And in 2 Timothy 3, I want to pick it up starting in verse 1, where Paul said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. That's the big one. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. And I think the spirit of the last days has taken control of our nation and its people. It's infiltrated the church. What is it? It's an attitude of pride that has manifested itself in a critical, retaliatory, vindictive kind of spirit in the hearts of many towards those who dare to disagree with them. Disagree with them. This has resulted in a decrease of humility and with it, a lack of desire to work through and resolve conflicts with others. Now, we Christians don't have the spirit of the age living inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, whom the New Testament calls the spirit of peace, who commanded us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, to always be humble and gentle. Paul said, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Look, since peace rooted in unity is commanded by God in the New Testament for His people, that means that conflict resolution is not something we can ignore. God says, I want you to, and the Greek word is agonize, I want you to agonize till it hurts, basically, to do everything in your power to live at peace with each other in the local church. In other words, whatever it takes, unity is so important in the body of Christ, Jesus prayed for it the night before he went to the cross. Father, I pray that you would make them one even as we are one. Why was that so important? Because Jesus knew that a united family, marriage, church, or a nation is a strong family, church, or nation. That the devil is all about dividing and conquering. And we'll never be able to be victorious as a church against the onslaughts of the wicked one if we're not united with each other. That's why the devil tries to get in and work and work through egos and this and that and sow discord. Because he wants to divide. He knows that when we're divided against each other, we are weak. When we are united, we are strong. That's why the Bible has so much to say about us being you know, unified and at peace with each other. That means that conflict resolution is not something we can ignore. We're going to be at peace with each other. And conflict, by the way, is inevitable, which means we have to work at solving it. We have to work at, you know, working it through. Now, let me just say this along those lines. It takes two to resolve conflict. It only takes one person to forgive. But it takes two to actually resolve the conflict. Just because you humble yourself, in an effort to work through the conflict you have with somebody else doesn't mean they're going to necessarily humble themselves to try to work through the conflict. That's why Paul the Apostle said in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, 
as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people. And in fact, in our text this morning, Jesus told us that there would be times when resolving conflict with some people wouldn't be possible, verse 17. We'll study that more next time and what we do about that. But for this morning, before we look at the guidelines for conflict resolution and for dealing with those who sin against us that Jesus lays out here in Matthew 18, I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at how God uses conflict to build our Christian character. Look, as we said, conflict is inevitable in human relationships and is often used by the devil to destroy relationships, destroy churches, and so on. But listen to me. What the devil intends for evil, God always wants to use for good. What the devil intends for evil, God always wants to use in some way for good. And so there are benefits to conflict and conflict resolution. The first one is that conflict gives us an opportunity to exercise humility. Turn to Genesis 13. Conflict gives us an opportunity to exercise humility. We see this in Genesis chapter 13. Let's begin with verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot, who was his nephew, went with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between us, no, no conflict between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. We are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Do you see the humility here in Abram, Abraham? Do you realize that they lived in a patriarchal culture, which meant the older was always revered and respected above the younger? Abraham was Lot's uncle. If anyone should have been deferring to the other to make the first choice, it should have been Lot to Uncle Abraham. When Abraham said this, Lot should have responded, Uncle, you are the elder, and you deserve to choose first. But Lot didn't do that. Lot was not really a humble man. He was a selfish man. And it was wound up being to his demise and his family. Because he looked and said, Well, look, that, that plain right there by Sodom, that looks like good land. I'm taking that. And, of course, you all know what happened. He wound up living in the city, and it destroyed his family. Abraham, on the other hand, esteemed Lot, more important than himself. He humbled himself, let Lot choose first. And you know what that is rooted in? Not just humility. It's rooted in your faith in God's sovereignty. See, when we don't trust God to really do the best for us, then we want to be a Jacob. We want to get ahead of people, trip them up, get ahead, get the advantage. Why? Because i got to get what's coming to me. 
when you really believe in the Lord and he's got your life in his hands, you realize these are tests. These are tests from God to see how you're going to handle this situation. And it allowed Abraham an opportunity to demonstrate humility. And he trusted God. He said, Lot, you go choose first. Lot chose the best land, walking by sight. Abraham trusted God, living by faith. And God blessed Abraham. But the point I'm making is this, guys. As we have opportunities to exercise humility and put others before ourselves, as we do that, guess what? We grow a little more like Jesus every time because he was the epitome of humility. He did not count equality with God, something to be hung on to, but emptied himself, humbled himself, came down, took the form of a servant, took on a body, went to the cross and died for us, and so on. Jesus Christ was the epitome of humility. And guess what? Every time God allows us to be in a situation where we can either fight for our rights and, and, and want to you know get first in line, or we exercise humility. Whenever we exercise humility, we become a little more like Jesus. And that builds our Christian character. And that really is what it's all about, right? Secondly, conflict can make us better people by forcing us to consider the feelings and convictions of others. For this, and you don't have to turn there, I like Proverbs 27, verse 17, which simply says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron. You know, as Christians, we get passionate about serving the Lord, don't we? I mean, we get passionate about serving God. Our passion is rooted in our convictions. As we study the Word, we study what the Lord has told us to do, how to live, how to serve Him, and so on. Um, those become convictions for us. Convictions that, that manifest themselves in a passion for ministry, a passion to serve the Lord. And as Christians, we don't always agree, though, on the proper way to do things. Maybe the best way to reach a community for Christ or conduct a ministry or something like that. All right, But we're passionate because we are of the conviction that our way is right. And so what happens is we sometimes clash. All right, We sometimes come up against somebody who has a different conviction about this. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who has a different conviction about sin. All right, What God has clearly forbidden, what he has called sin, there's no compromise. There's, that, that's set in stone, right? I'm talking about, you know, non-essential um, doctrines, uh, uh, philosophy of ministry, that kind of thing, all right? Sometimes we come up against somebody who has a different set of convictions in these areas, and, you know, sparks fly. Iron sharpens iron. You try to use iron to sharpen iron, the sparks that result. The sparks, though, are an evidence of what's going on. There's a honing taking place, a honing, Right? And it's okay for people who are passionate about the Lord to sometimes disagree. And sometimes to disagree passionately. If, listen to me, if our commitment to the Lord and to each other is strong enough to force us to take the time to listen and uh, carefully consider the other person's position. Look, just because you have a conviction that some way is the right way to do something, doesn't mean it's necessarily the only way or even the best way to do it. We should be open to sitting down and going, okay, now I know you have some strong feelings about this ministry and how we should do it, 
and I do too. Let's sit down over coffee and let's talk about it. I want to hear what you're feeling. I mean, why are you so passionate about doing it that way? And as you sit down and dialogue in a respectful way, you hone each other. You, if you've got the right heart, you say, you know what, I never thought about that. That isn't a bad idea. And the other person might say the same to you. And what happens is you are honing each other to be better instruments in the hands of God. If you let it. If you let the conflict lead you in that direction. It all comes down to commitment, though, right? This is especially true when it comes to the commitment a man and a woman pledge to each other as they enter into marriage. Let me read you a little story that I came across. Uh, the author says that uh, Isabel Kuhn, popular author and missionary to China, was married to John, a man just as strong-willed and stubborn as she was. The two had many conflicts. John, for example, had a cook in China to whom he was devoted, but whom Isabel could not stand. Tensions grew, and Isabel sulked and stewed until finally she exploded. She and John had a blazing argument. I'm sure nobody in this room has ever had a blazing argument with your spouse. Stuffing her hat on her head, Isabel stalked from the house through town and onto the prairie plain, boiling with rage. She said to herself, I am not going to live with a man who gives a lazy servant preference over his wife. She walked for hours enraged, not caring where she went. She finally returned home, but the situation remained tense, although John told Isabel she could dismiss the servant. When the local church leaders visited wanting to know why the cook had been fired, John wouldn't back Isabel, and he didn't hire anyone else, sending all the domestic duties on her. Other issues soon arose, and for a long time the marriage was painful and stressed. But John and Isabel were, com were committed to the master. They were committed to personal spiritual maturity and to working and maintaining the relationship, however difficult it seemed. The two finally built a satisfying, fulfilling marriage. Near the end of her life, Isabel wrote these words. She said, I feel many modern marriages are wrecked on just sharp shoals as this. A human weakness is pointed out. The correction is resented. Argument grows bitter. Young people are not ready to forgive, not willing to endure. Divorce is too quickly seized upon as a way out. She goes on to suggest the way God deals with it is by our prayer our humility, our waiting upon him in patience to work in the hearts of the others or the heart of the other in this situation. She said, this is God's way. And listen, I love this statement. It molds the two opposite natures into one invincible whole. That's what God wants to accomplish, accomplish through conflict resolution. He wants us to, sure, we can all be hard-headed. Okay, myself included. We can all feel we're standing on our convictions. But sometimes it's just pride. And if we'll take the time to humble ourselves, listen to each other, take into consideration what the other is saying, humble, be humble enough to say, you know, I see where they're coming from. Yeah, I can make some changes in that area. Yeah, I can do that. Well, what about them? I'm going to pray and let God speak to their hearts about the changes they need to make. But as people work together, especially in marriage, they are taken from two opposite camps and are molded into one invincible whole. Commitment. And that brings us to the third benefit of conflict. Working towards resolving conflicts strengthens our commitment 
to one another. Look, anything we invest our time in, our energy in, will over time strengthen our commitment to that thing or that cause or that person, right? Whenever you s spend time working, you know, in a ministry or uh, even in a job or working on a relationship, the more time you put into that thing, the more of a vested interest you have in seeing it succeed. The more time you invest over time, it will strengthen your commitment to that person or that cause or that thing. It applies to any single relationship like in marriage or a group relationship like in a church family setting. But the longer you invest yourself in that relationship, and listen to me, work for it and value it. There are a lot of people who have stayed a long time in a marriage but have not really valued it or worked on it and they have stayed there with the mentality I can't wait for the kids to grow up so I can dump this person and get somebody new so that's really not working now longevity doesn't equal a good strong marriage but longevity coupled with a person valuing their marriage working on it constantly sacrificing and so on the more you do that, the more committed you're going to be to that relationship or to that church. The problem with 21st century American Christianity is that many people don't want to work through their conflicts with others because of their pride. It's my way or the highway. You know, come to church for a little while. A conflict arises with somebody. That's it. I'm out of here. And neither do they want to commit to a church where they can serve and sacrifice themselves for others, often because, let's be honest, they're just too lazy and selfish. They come to a church to be served, not to serve. But of course, they're not acting like Jesus. And the result is, they would rather find a new church rather than invest the time, energy, sacrifice, and hard work necessary to resolve conflicts and to build strong, committed relationships with other Christians in that local church when we hang in there when we see our marriage as something that deserves to be saved that deserves to be worked on because the finished product is more glorious than the work it takes to get us there if we have that kind of heart toward marriage that kind of heart toward our commitment to a local church body where we make it not about ourselves, but we see how we can be a blessing to others. How can I commit myself to this group of people? What can I do to bless them? If that's your, your, everyone's mindset, everyone's going to be blessed because of it. And the result is a church that is close, that is aware of each other's needs, that is meeting those needs. I am so saddened to see how many Christians church hop constantly. Why? because you know after a while somebody maybe challenges them on something they're doing that's not really right and they get offended and leave or you know when they're asked to maybe serve in a ministry they don't really want to do that can't be bothered and so they'll just find another church the problem is the people that do this never really connect with anybody else in the body and you're never going to be able to build a kind of deep fellowship. And that's what it is. Koinonia, fellowship, is a, is a oneness. It's not just, you know, coffee and donuts after church, although I'm not against that. Uh, it's more than that. It's getting, it's, it's living, okay, in a way that you're living in close proximity with other believers. You're getting together in prayer or a small group 
or just, you know, over a meal. You're building, you're deepening that relationship. You're getting to know each other, holding each other accountable, realizing when somebody is going through a difficult time so you can be, put the word out to pray, or they have a need, we can put the word out to meet that need. You'll never have that kind of a church if everybody is superficial, not committed, and only looking out for what they're going to get out of it. Turn to Acts chapter 4, and I'll show you what that kind of church, a church that's really committed to each other, looks like. Of course, the church had just gotten started, just was born. Acts 4, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Just another way of saying there was beautiful unity. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And I believe it had to do with their unity, their unity and their love for each other. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things they that were sold, laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Look, they knew each other's needs because they knew one another. They spent time with each other. Biblical koinonia, fellowship, is a oneness that can only be developed when people stay with each other, work with each other, serve with each other, get to know each other, because then you know the needs. All right, You know if someone is a need, and then you can let us know. We can rally around that person, try to meet that need. You'll never be able to do that kind of thing if you don't know people. You'll never know people if you don't stay long enough in a church or get involved in a church where you get to meet people and get to serve with them. That's why I encourage everyone to get involved in a ministry, begin to work with people. Does that mean that there's never going to be a problem? Of course not. We're passionate. Sometimes we're going to butt heads. But if you do, do it respectfully. Do it where you're listening to each other, work through it. The bottom line is it produces a strong body of believers that are committed to each other and where love is demonstrated because we know each other and we know the needs. So working together, resolving conflict strengthens our commitment to one another. Number four, and I want to throw this one in here just so we understand something. Number four, conflict isn't limited to carnal, immature Christians which we often think is the case. It is the case most of the time, but not always. Turn to Acts 15. Now let me give you the background. Acts 15, starting in verse 36, uh, well, let me read it. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed being commended, commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. What ha what's going on here? Well, during their first missionary journey, uh, Paul and Barnabas launched out their first missionary journey. And Barnabas took Mark, who was, some say his cousin, some say his nephew. Okay, he was related to Barnabas. Mark was about maybe 15 at the time. And they took him along as kind of like the, 
you know, the young kid to, you know, go the gopher, okay, you know, to run and get a soda from the 7-Eleven or whatever the, they needed in the, on the mission field there for, you know, for the work, right? And so they got about halfway through this first missionary journey, and Mark decides it's not for him, and he splits. He goes back home. Why? We don't know. Some say, you know, the rigors of missionary life got to him. Others say, well, they were about to enter into a dangerous area. Uh, a lot of thieves, robbers, a lot of murders take place, and he got scared and went home. Either way, Paul was furious. So sometime later, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and check on the church as we plan to see how the Christians are doing. Barnabas goes, that's a great idea, Paul. I'd like to take Bark with us again. Paul says, are you serious? Are you kidding me? The kid abandoned us, okay? He left us, you know, last time. No way, uh-uh. And Barnabas kept insisting to take Mark. Paul says, no way. This thing, conflict, got so heated, they actually split and parted ways. Now, some say, well, that, that was good. You had two missionary teams now. Well, you had two missionary teams. I'm not sure that was the best way to do it, okay? People say, well, who was right, who was wrong? I think probably both of them were right in some ways. Some, both of them were wrong in some ways. And that usually is the problem with resolving conflicts and what makes it so difficult is that conflict is often rooted in opposing convictions, which we just got done talking about. But conflict isn't limited to carnal, immature Christians. But listen to me, mature believers will eventually work things out. Mature, spirit-filled believers are not going to want to live in conflict with another brother or sister. They're going to want to do what they, they can do to work it out. Make it right. We know that Paul and Barnabas eventually patched things up. We also know that John Mark went on to be very, uh, very su successful in ministry. In fact, in Paul's ministry, Paul in time came to depend on John Mark. Uh, he loved him, depended on him. But he became a vital part of Paul's ministry. In that regard, I think that probably Barnabas was ultimately the right one. Barnabas was all about, his name means son of encouragement. Barnabas was all about taking people who were, you know, diamonds in the rough and working with them until they blossom for the Lord. Paul, kind of all business, okay? And so when Mark took off the first time, I'm sure Barnabas said, Paul, I knew he took off just the first time, but I think he's grown since then. I think that he's ready to go with us this, this time. I really believe he's changed, and Paul wouldn't hear of it. But later on, it proved that Barnabas was right. John Mark did blossom. He went on to be a valued member of Paul's missionary team. But conflict, even among strong Christians, is going to happen from time to time. That's a given. Again, it's not the issue of conflict. It's how it's resolved that's the issue. And spirit-filled believers are not going to let the situation go unresolved for very long. Now, let me say this. If you are in conflict with somebody, and I'm not saying you haven't tried to work it out and they've refused. I'm saying if you're in conflict with somebody or with several people, and this is going on for a long time, and you have not made any attempt to reconcile or to work through the situation, it is indicating that you are not really where you should be with the Lord. I hate to say that because I know sometimes certain situations are very hurtful. I understand that. But as Christians, we are commanded to work through things. And the fact that we dig our heels in and refuse to work through something with another brother or sister who's, you know, either offended us or we've gotten into an argument with over some aspect of ministry, 
the fact that we're not willing to work it out indicates we're really not letting the Spirit fill us or the idea is control us as we should. So something to think about. I'll give you one more. There's probably others we could talk about. But number five, conflict provides an opportunity for us to be a witness to the lost. This is an important one. Turn to Acts 6, verse 1. Now again, in Acts chapter 6, the church wasn't that old by this point. Still kind of new. Verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. What does that mean? Well, they had a food pantry, basically. Okay? And they would dole out food every day for widows. The Hellenists were Jews that lived outside the land of Israel. They were in town because at Pentecost they got saved and they couldn't go back to their pagan towns and learn about Christ, so they stuck around. This created a lot of uh, extra need. And you had these Hellenist Jews who were really who really lived outside the land of Israel. They spoke Greek as their primary language and they were more aligned with Grecian culture than they were with Jewish culture. The Hebrews were simply Jews that lived in Israel. They were Israelites. They spoke Hebrew as a primary language and they were very committed to the Jewish way of life. Now these two groups were in constant conflict and they looked down on each other. And since the apostles, listen, were from the land of Israel, well, as they were running this distribution program, because those guys were from Israel, the Jews from outside of Israel believed that the apostles were favoring the Hebrew widows over the Hellenist widows. And so here we have a conflict that has the potential of severely damaging uh, and dividing this young church. But look at the way the apostles handle this. Such a spirit-filled way of doing this. Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, that we may give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I love this. Look at how they handled this. Satan tried to get in there and cause discord. Hey, you apostles, you're from Israel. You're favoring the Israeli widows over our widows. Now, the way the apostles handled this says to me they were not trying to favor anybody. Things had just gotten out of hand. I mean, it, the church was growing. They couldn't handle it all. It, they were overwhelmed. And so maybe it appeared like they were favoring certain widows, but they weren't. And here's why I know for sure, because they said to these guys who were the Hellenists, they said to this, this group, look, you go ahead and choose for yourselves who you want to run this program. Make sure that they're good men of character, filled with the Holy Spirit, strong in the faith, and you appoint them. 
And so you know what these guys did? They chose all, and these you wouldn't know it from just reading this unless you studied the passage. Every name here is a Greek name. These were all Hellenist Jews. The apostles said, look, you Hellenists, you go pick guys from among yourselves to handle this. We're not trying to cheat your widows. All right. So they picked out seven guys, and these were good men who took over this ministry. Look at how this was handled. The apostles didn't say, well, who do you think you are accusing us of this? Don't you know who we are? We're apostles. Okay? Blah, blah, blah. Well, the apostles humbled themselves and said, guys, we're not trying to cheat anybody. Look, if it, if it seems to you like we are trying to cheat your widows, then you guys choose out for yourselves seven guys to run this program. And because of the way they handled this, look what happened. Not only with the devil intended for evil, God turned around and used for good because of the humility of the apostles. I'm sure Satan went, mm, I thought I hit him, you know? But it was because of the way they dealt with this, the sensitivity that they showed towards those who were offended, well, a potentially divisive issue was diffused and the gospel went forward even more than before. And it even says in verse 7 to the point where many priests were saved. Let me just say this to you. If conflict is dealt with in humility, love, and selflessness, the result will be that unbelievers will take notice and be drawn to Jesus. I'm convinced of that. There is so much fighting in the church today, though. So many people who are fighting for their rights, fighting for their will, fighting for positions of honor in the church. It really is sad. The world sees a divided church. The world sees us at each other's throats. I was telling first service, this week I was reading a little uh, bit of uh, the history of Dr. Charles Stanley's ministry. Of course, many of you have been blessed by his ministry over the years. He pastors the church down in, uh, in Alabama, I believe. And uh, the article was saying, though, that uh, when, the, when the former pastor was ready to retire or leave the church, several men were, were set forth to be replacements. One of those was Dr. Charles Stanley. Well, I guess at this church meeting, a big brouhaha erupted over who was going to be chosen. Okay, everyone divided into groups for their guy. It got so heated, and Dr. Stanley was not part of the, was not, you know, he, he was not involved in the yelling and stuff like that. But at one point, somebody else from the church came up to him and actually hit him in the mouth, punched him in the face. Now, I'm sure if there's any unbelievers in the audience that day, what a blessed witness that was to them. However, God quickly changed the spirit of the, or the atmosphere because Dr. Stanley just stood there. He didn't retaliate. He didn't say a word. He didn't try to fight back. He just stood there and he took that punch. And in humility, he didn't say a word. He eventually got the call and has been the pastor there for I don't know how many years. But I think that if there was any unbelievers there who saw his reaction, hopefully that's the one that stayed with them. That here is a truly godly man who is not going to let conflict cause him to, not going to destroy his witness, but his witness to Jesus, no matter what happens in the situation, no matter who gets called to be the pastor. My witness is not going to be destroyed. I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. That's a powerful witness for the world to see. Look, let me just end with this. Again, conflict is inevitable. All right? And 
It can either be used for good or for bad. If you see it as God allowing it as an opportunity to grow you, a test, well, it's going to make you better and not bitter. If it's handled properly, it's going to bring unity and not division. It's going to cause your light to shine brightly and not be diminished through carnality. But understand what Paul says in Galatians 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And that's what Satan wants. He wants to bring in conflict, to get the church fighting amongst itself. Sides are drawn, teams are chosen, and we're going to war against each other. And I pray in Jesus' name that never happens here. It's good for us to study these things because we understand how Satan works, but we also understand what God's trying to do. And now we know. Am I going to act carnally when someone tries to take a ministry that I believe belongs to me? Or am I going to back away and say, Lord Jesus, it's your ministry? You know what? As Paul said, whether they, they, some people want to run me down. Some people want to lift me up. He said, either way, Christ is being preached. That's all I care about. Committed to God, like Abraham. Just committed to God, trust in his sovereignty. May God give us the grace to do that. Such an important area, guys, and uh, one that we all live with, but don't always live with very well. May God give us the grace to start handling our conflicts in a godly way. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this is a subject that is of vital importance because it's something we deal with all the time, conflict. And Lord, give us grace to walk in the Spirit, to not, Lord, become vindictive, retaliatory when people disagree with us or even try to take something from us with regard to ministry that we believe belongs to us. Well, Lord, give us grace to be humble, to be like Jesus, Father, that every time we have a chance to exercise humility and we do it, our light shines a little brighter, our Christ-likeness becomes a little stronger. Give us grace, Lord, to understand conflict, inevitable, but, Lord, it's always used by you to build our character. So, Lord, strengthen us, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.